I know a lot of you are seeking a higher quality of life, and I don't know anyone who wants the quality of their life to get worse. But that can happen when you're stuck in a rocky relationship or going through a difficult separation and divorce. My name's Liz Rankin, and I've created the Separation Fix with the intention of turning you away from that mess and in the direction of a brighter future. I hope you find this episode interesting, and thanks for listening. Michael, I am so thrilled to be interviewing you today. I have known Michael Houghton for more than two decades, from a time when Michael was working as a registered psychologist in the family court, and I was working as a solicitor with my family law clients. As well as being a registered psychologist, Michael is a trained teacher, author, international speaker, and also is the founder of Parent Shop. Michael's training program, 123 Magic and Emotion Coaching, has been delivered to over 11,000 professionals and teachers and well over 100,000 parents across Australia, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Michael is also the author of two parenting books. The first is Talk Less, Listen More, which I can definitely recommend, which is also being produced as an e-course. And the second book is Engaging Adolescents, Parenting Tough Issues with Teenagers. Having worked with children and families for more than 30 years, Michael has so much information and experience to share. But today, I want to focus on teenagers and the impact of separation and divorce on them. In preparing for today's interview, I reread Michael's book, Engaging Adolescents, Parenting Tough Issues with Teenagers, and I'd commend this book to any parent or caregiver of teenagers. Whoa, Michael, the only downside of having such high-quality guests is it takes me a while to get through all their accomplishments. (laughs) So, Michael, before we start, I just want to have a little catch up. We haven't spoken for a while. I've been hearing you've been um, some time in China. What's all that about? Yeah, we we formed a contract with a group in China called the New Oriental Technology Group. Uh, They teach English to students before they go to colleges like Harvard and Yale and um, Berkeley. Um, but it, primarily they're an English language school, but they have teachers. And um, anyway, they my book got published in China about three years ago, Talk Less, Listen More. And on the back of that, they asked me to come over and do some training with their teachers in behaviour management. Oh, okay. So that's what I've been doing. I've just been over there six times, trained up about 410 uh, teachers in Beijing. Wow. They, they all come from all over us. Uh, China to Beijing for you know three days and I train them for two of those days. Mm. So that fits in with your core business at Parent Shop. I think your byline is positive behavior change, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, certainly supporting parents to manage children's difficult behavior. When I was working as a psychologist, that's what parents came to see me about. Well, by the end of this interview, Michael, I hope listeners understand more about the teenagers in their life the impact of separation on them and their parents and how parents can help teenagers adjust to separation. So maybe we can start off with uh, your perspective and your experience of the landscape of a teenager's world and what they're journeying through. Well, I think um, 
the, the good news is that their their mind and their ability to kind of wrestle with frustration is improving. Right? It, from, it's an improvement on being a child. Um, and so I think teenagers getting better developmentally, being able to get things in perspective, and, and that's what really engaging adolescence is based on, is that we should see improvements, iterative improvements in the way that kids can um, handle conflict, but also handle things that might make them anxious or a bit worried to get things in proportion. Uh, so uh, the landscape is definitely changing. Parts of their mind is, is growing, um, you know, and, and that means that parents are going to see ups and downs in their teenagers' emotions and therefore their behaviour. Um, but it's good. It's an exciting time. Having had two teenagers, um, it's, it's certainly their throughout a V for life um, is uh, fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's an exciting time. And some of the qualities they have, though, you'd appreciate maybe in adults, <laughs> meaning how challenging they are, how independent they want to be, um, their energy but it's some yeah. you know it's sometimes difficult um when they're not ready for some of those things well they're going to push boundaries and and i think that's just part of being a teenager um my one of my concerns at the moment is that maybe uh, we're not making them um plucky enough you know they're not getting out there and having a go because they're too anxious um and the growing levels of anxiety in children and young people is a bit of a worry i think I'd like to come back to that a little bit later when I talk more about the impact of separation on teenagers, but yeah. I'd like to get more into, just for a while, about what you'd say they're capable of in terms of their development and what they're not capable of in terms of their development. Well, I think uh, they're going to take uh, risks, and, and, and this is kind of interesting in so far as that parents need to work out what's too much you know, what's too much of a risk. And so at, at say, 14 or 15, uh, the part of their mind that can get things in proportion and, and, and see um, things uh, down the road, or like concerns down the road, um, it's not well built. And, and, the, and the mind, as we know, people's minds don't really fully develop until they're in the early 20s with, with boys taking a bit longer than girls. But... That said, that means it's an important role for parents to play in moderating some of those uh, risks uh, and, and putting some boundaries around some behaviour. And I think part of the problem here is that parents don't know sometimes what represents a problem. I think the two biggest things that come up, uh, parents are not sure when they should act and then ultimately how they should act. So when they should act is when they make a call um, on, on their teenager's behaviour, uh, enough is enough or that crosses the line, um, that type of thing. And then the issue is how do I remedy, how do I have the conversation with them, which is often a difficult one, about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate, how do I remedy the problem that I might see before me? Well, that, that makes me reflect on three parts of your book. So I don't know where I'm going to start, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> the issue about the brain that was the first yeah. thing you mentioned. And um, I think I'd like to go back to that first because I think that is so, so important or I found that important for me, learning from you, about 
the brain's development, the prefrontal cortex, just a little bit about basic neuroscience and our, and our teenagers. Would you just do a, a little explanation of that? Uh, sure. Well, Thank I think you. a good way of thinking, yeah, a, th- a good way of thinking about it is you've got an upstairs brain and a downstairs brain. Okay. So upstairs, upstairs brain um, has the ability to um, talk to the downstairs brain to get things in proportion. So let's take, for example, um, your, you get shocked by something. Something scares you, frightens you. Uh, that's your amygdala. That's your uh, downstairs brain that has more connections going up than the upstairs brain has coming down. And as you get older, you're able to get things a bit more in perspective and to self-soothe. So we would, we would, we would hunch it a bit uh, that uh, 14-year-olds are going to be better at this than 10-year-olds in being able to self-soothe uh, and to to think things through without being panicked or catastrophizing. So the upstairs brain, which is the prefrontal area, is like the pilot in a plane. It actually helps them to kind of work things out. It helps them to kind of solve problems um, without, without catastrophizing, really. And, and so that's growing and growing until they're in their late teens and early 20s where it becomes more fully formed. I think I read in your book, you said there that um, it's not until maybe 24 that that, pre- that upstairs brain <laughs> or yeah. that prefrontal cortex is developed. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe that's why I keep on saying to my teenagers, I am your prefrontal cortex. <laughs> For the moment. For better off the worse. <laughs> How do they respond to that? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, my... My 14-year-old, sadly for me, can already um, beat me in an argument, which he loves because he says it's great to be able to beat a lawyer in an argument, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, they're delightful. <laughs> oh. So, but obviously that's just about impulse control, isn't it? That's going to, you know, if that prefrontal cortex, that upstairs brain isn't fully, fully developed, that's going to, you know, impact on that. Uh, well, it means you're not always going to make the wisest of decisions. And I think parents undersell themselves a bit because, um, well, they're worried about putting the child off. And so a lot of times we want to, and, and, and that's reasonable, we want to get on with our teenage son or daughter. Uh, but at the same time, there are times when you just have to go in there and say, well, actually, this is not okay if you'd be doing this. And uh, I need to step in as the fully, I keep telling parents, it's about having the fully adult psychological mind. You've got the fully adult, adult psychological mind, they don't. And, uh, and that means there's a bit of responsibility that goes with that, which is sometimes I'm going to have to make a call about going to that party where there's going to be no supervision and it's out, at a, you know, it's out the back of a farm somewhere um, and you're thinking, no, nah, that's too big a risk for you, my 14-year-old daughter, to be going to that, to that gig. So I think parents undersell their ability to, for perspective and to see a risk when it's needed. But by the same token, they need to work out what's a big fish and what's a small fish. And in the book, I talk about things called annoying but not serious, ABNs, uh, and annoying but not serious behaviour might be the state of their bedroom. You know, it might be uh, the way in which they kind of dress 
and uh, you know, within reason, you might think, well, okay, well, I'm happy to let that one go under the banner of style, or that's what their taste is at the moment. But there are then there are bigger issues, you know, that pet parents need to kind of get involved in. Well, I think um, that was a piece of wisdom, you know, many parents who've navigated this time gave me, which was sort of avoid these unnecessary power struggles, you know, don't sweat the small stuff. Yeah. I think that's probably particularly important when a lot can be going on with separation. Why do you think it's important to avoid these sort of smaller things or, or things that are bothersome? Yeah. But I think if you harp on the small things, it kind of erodes the relationship. And it's okay. kind of like, um, and I think the relationship at the end of the day, I've seen enough of my own uh, friends and colleagues who've had children who, you know, the kids have been raised in pretty good families, but then they do silly stuff, you know, 17, 18, 19. They do dumb stuff, some kids. And they're basically good kids, but but the, the thing that is the most important lever is your relationship with them. And and I would have thought that if that's to be cherished and nurtured uh, as much as it, as it is possible and only keep your powder dry, so to speak, for the for the big stuff. Okay. Well, they're working stuff out. Well, if you're going to leave your powder dry for the big stuff, um, this gets to your anagram in your book, doesn't it, about how to manage these difficult, bigger issues. That's your mm. anagram, past, isn't it, P-A-S-T-A. Yeah. Um, would you explain how you advise parents dealing with these more difficult conversations? Yeah. Look, I used to be a school teacher, and one of the things that I learned being a school teacher was to put things in a sequence, which means do this first, do this next, do this next, do this next. And that's what pastor is. Uh, it, it represents a sequence of activities. The first thing that parents need to do going into any kind of conversation with their teenage son or daughter is to do a bit of preparation. And the preparation is not very much, a couple of pages. of uh, In the book I've got some headings that people can fill out but by, by completing a kind of a, a script, going into the conversation with a, with a script, if you get interrupted, you won't be as flummoxed. You won't be like a deer in the headlights if they interrupt you because you've got your script ready. You can always go back to your script. And so I say to parents, you've got to prepare. Make, a, make an appointment is A. Make an appointment is really about how... It's, a lot of people have what are called hall, hallway conversations they catch the kid on the run out the door just before you go out. I want to talk to you about X or, you know, I'm going out, but I wanted to talk to you about what happened last night. And they do it on the run, so to speak. And those often end up in arguments or somebody walking away dissatisfied. I think one of the things that strikes me is that teenagers really need to learn a mature way to resolve conflict, which is sitting down, you know, even if it's uncomfortable with your mum and dad and to try and work something out. Um, the third letter is S, stands for say, uh, say it in a particular way. In the scripting process in Pastor, I say to parents, uh, you can use a, another anagram called CPR, which is content, pattern and relationship. Content is what you see them doing. You got home the other night at two in the morning. That's, that's a fact. So content is the facts as you observe them, heard them, see them, um, and you put those facts across to your teenage son or daughter. Um, then there's another part of it called say what you want, 
which is spelling out after you've spelt out all the facts as you know them, what, what it is you'd like them to do differently in the future. T is for tame the tiger. T mean, tame the tiger means that any self-respecting 14-year-old is probably going to get a bit um, cranky or angry um, that they're having to be held accountable by their mum or dad. And so you need to know how to tame the tiger. Bit much to go into today, but if you've got some, some key sayings or some things that you can say uh, that will help them to uh, uh, calm down without you telling them to calm down, uh, that's a good thing. And then A is for agreement. A means, uh, okay, given all of these things, this is what we're agreeing about going forwards. So it's a bit more involved than that. In the Engaging Adolescents book, it's kind of spelt out with worksheets uh, so that parents can have a look at that if they need to. I've actually um, scripted some conversations out, and I'll tell you um, off the mic how it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, but actually, it is really fantastic. And I have to say, um, I think um, if we parents um, had practiced some of those scripts in our marriage and had some of these conversations in such a structured, calm way, I think a mm. lot of people would have improved just their own relationships because it's just the thought rather than those impromptu conversations when the other person might not be ready for that. It's not a good moment for them either sometimes. Absolutely. Now. Something, I just want to pivot a bit um, away from that really great advice about having these difficult conversations with your teenager. I want to pivot to something that struck me when I was rereading your book, Engaging Adolescents. And um, I think your input will be so useful because, you know, you've worked with separating um, parents when you're working um, at the court. I saw just a parallel between an adolescent's brain and what I often think is happening in the brain of a parent who is separating, particularly like in the early stages when emotion can be raw. Do you think my comparison is valid? What do you think? Yeah, I think it's all right. I, you know, I think it's good. I think it's, um, I think what I saw is a lot of people weren't their best self. If you saw them at another time in their life, you would think to yourself, uh, you were just a normal human being. But sometimes because we're so cranky or angry or, um, yeah, unable to kind of tie down those emotions which appear to be out of control for a period of time, people um, people's behaviour wasn't as good as it could be. And that's a more benign way of looking at it, I guess. Most people were trying their best. You know, they were trying their best to work out their own hurt and grief um, but at the same time, look after their children. And, and and if you take the Qantas theory on on board, you know Qantas theory says what? Put the mask on yourself first, and then put the mask on your ch children. So I think for a lot of separating parents, they're they're really having to kind of resolve the difficulty of, and the grief of of letting go of one relationship and morphing into maybe another, but or, but often just being by yourself without that person who you thought because nobody would be with you for the rest of your life because nobody goes into a marriage thinking or a couple relationship where you have children thinking it's going to break up. You go in there with all things, you know, a dream, uh, a view that it's going to last for a long, long time. And when it doesn't, I think it's a very big kick in the guts, you know. How do you recover from the kick in the guts um, so that you can be the parent 
you need to be, but also so that you can resolve this over a period of time um, for yourself. Well, I think it's, you know, talking about the teenagers too, I just think um, the greater your emotions, the worse your thinking. Well, often that's self-harming you, us, more than harming somebody else, if that makes sense. I mean, uh, our emotional brain, of course, the one that gets afraid, um, can catastrophize or can think in a kind of binary way. Um, you know, this is never going to be any good. This is the end as we, of, of my life as I know it. Um, or catastrophizing, which is, you know, this is the worst thing that could have ever happened. Well, maybe. But maybe it's, you know, life is going to be full of griefs. And I think one of the things that I think is really important when we're building up children's resilience, for example, is to help them um, to be less fragile. I mean, we're all going to have times when it's terrible and, and it's there's a lot of grief but we've got to roll through it somehow i think that's interesting because i think you know there's so many emotions when um one separates and i think there can also be a lot of guilt you know um around your children and i think it's more productive to think you know we all want to have our children have a smooth childhood but a normal child with some bumps a couple of hurdles is probably a better preparation for being an adult. Is that what you're saying there? Uh, well, I don't know. I, I, I'm I not. I don't. I'm quite saying that. I'm thinking that in order for kids to be resilient, um, we've got to help them face up to two or three, or two, at least two things. One is life is going to be full of difficult times. Whichever way you look at it, anybody's life. Um, is is going to be full of what what are called black swan moments when you're not when you weren't expecting a black swan to come along all of a sudden it comes out of nowhere so a black swan is something that can be a bad thing or a good thing like sometimes there are positive black swans you know things that that occur in your life think oh that's good you know I wasn't expecting that but the other thing is that there are negative black swans and the negative ones are. By far, of course, the more difficult to 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 deal with. Uh, I think that uh, as adults, we're all going to find ourselves kicked in the gut sometimes, um, just as a function of being of li living your life. And then I think what what's important is to not get overwhelmed by that. Um, not be a, not be. Um, thrown completely off. I remember my mother used to say, she's a woman in her 80s now, and she said uh, a lot of people back in her day used to, to uh, take things in their stride. You know, she would say that he took things, he, used to, he was a man who took things in his stride. And I think what she meant by that was that it wasn't that bad things didn't happen, but people weren't blown over by them. Um, and I think at the moment what we're seeing uh, particularly in, in younger children, uh, that they're a bit more brittle than they used to be. That's not good. Sometimes when you're talking, what you're saying applies to the adults and to the children. Yeah, I guess so. Taking it in, in one stride. So then specifically for a parent who obviously wants to support their teenager and get, get them through the early stages, particularly as smoothly as possible, what do you suggest to a separating adult? 
to help their teenager? Um, d don't join in their catastrophizing would okay. be my. Uh, don't join in the emotional reasoning part of it. You know, the emotional reasoning, like feelings are notoriously unreliable. They're important, but they are unreliable arbiters of what's going on. They, they're just feelings. Uh, and and they're important, as I said before, but they're not necessarily accurate. Uh, and nor are they necessarily something that are going to hang around forever. They're going to, you know, you can you can reset a feeling by thinking about how to, how am I going to make the best of this or uh, what's important at the moment is that I'll look after myself so that I can look after my children. Um, that kind of thinking so that what's constructive, how can I reframe this, even though it feels partly terrible, that's only part of the issue here. And the other part is how you're going to organise or rearrange your life so, and it's a slow climb from what I've seen. A lot of people coming out of the grief and separation, it's a slow climb. But nonetheless, it's a climb towards more constructive place to be and where I can eventually, you know, return to some semblance of e equilibrium. I, I think that's the hard part is that, that once you, you're in the middle of that raw grief um, that's going on, it's kind of like a depression and it's hard to kind of, dig yourself out of that hole, even though you know you have to. There's a part of you that wants to, knows you have to kind of resolve it to move on. And without in any way downplaying the grief, life is full of griefs, little griefs, relationships change, um, kids leave home. Um, there are things that occur throughout life that are going to be small griefs and we've got to work out how can I be less fragile um, about that well turning to your book i was struck once again by some of the things you were recommending for the teenagers i thought was so useful for separating parents because i think that you know as you're saying you have to put on your you know your uh, oxygen mask it's about self-care so those suggestions you had for teenagers to make sure your teenager gets enough sleep um, try and make sure your teenager is eating well Make sure they're not on their technology too much. Um, I thought those were great advice for a separating mm. adult as well to try and um, reset themselves. Well, look, I, I think there's an old saying we had in, I think it's in Engaging Adolescence, I said the internet's an invited guest, not an assumed resident. Mm. Now, what that means, of course, is that you, we should be controlling technology, not letting it control us. Uh, and there's a part of our brain that gets activated called the default mode network that only gets activated when you're not on a device. In other words, it occurs when we're daydreaming, when we're going for a walk on the beach with the dog, when we're waking up in the morning. You know, in the morning when you wake up, sometimes you go, that's it, that's, the, that's it, that's, what, that's you. Your default mode network has kicked in. And it's a part of your mind, uh, of our minds, um, that is less used than it used to be because of technology. But it's actually important because it, it resolves complicated problems, it stores things in long-term memory, and it actually helps us to be creative. So exercising our default mode network is something that we need to do for ourselves, which is the walk on the beach or the yoga or the meditation or the 
the something that's going to let our mind wander while we kind of work through. It's the kind of filtering process. It's the processing part of our, our, our mind that, that unfortunately because of technology is not being as used as it, as it could be. And as a parent, a separating parent, there's a lot of problem solving to be done. So obviously that yep. default mode would be. Default um, mode network, it, to get it going and to think I need to actually take time out now in nature or I need to take time out and just sit and wonder, very important. And something I think is fairly well known but I, I, I don't think it can be emphasised enough, is that one of the best predictors of the impact of separation on our children is the quality of the parents' co-parenting relationship, you know, how they communicate and how they operate. So I guess what you're saying about um, getting handled off your emotions, the sooner the better. Well, it's the conflict. That's the big undoer of children. And um, certainly when I've written hundreds of family reports, uh, it's the ability of the parents to not fight in front of their children, uh, which is a choice. Not always, but most of the time it's a choice. So I could let fly, but I'm choosing not to let fly because little Harry's right in front of me. So that's that's a choice. Uh, sometimes we're able to grab that choice better than other times, but the absolute um, optimal circumstances for children where they don't see their parents in conflict uh, and perhaps where arrangements are worked out more business-like. I remember Isolina Ricky's book, Mum's House, Dad's House, which was a terrific little read during the 90s, and she would say that it's actually about having a business focus uh, rather than a friendship focus. You can't really, she says, move towards the friendship part for some time while you're resolving the emotional difficulties, but you can... You can do it by uh, having a focus on uh, on the business arrangements and that type of thing. So she's saying perhaps in time you might be able to be friends again, but that shouldn't be your focus when, when you've just separated. Well, you use a lot of sporting analogies um, in your book and probably the sporting analogy that might be appropriate here is that you don't have to like your teammate to be a good teammate. Ooh. What do you think? I suppose so. It's true. Yeah, I don't mind that. <laughs> it might, yeah, make yeah, the, yeah, sure. might make the game more fun. Oh, uh, yeah, it might make the game more fun, well, particularly afterwards when you're kind of <laughs> chatting about how the game went. But that's right. I think you can have a respect for this is the child's mother, this is the child's father. Like you can actually have a respect for uh, the other person and you can convey that to the child as a benefit to him or her, even though you may not be getting along with that person right now. I mean, take, for example, girls who have involved fathers uh, have a greater sense of self-esteem and self-sense of competency in what they do uh, where where their fathers are involved in their lives. So the the role of dads in in particularly girls' lives is very very important for their, um, their growth and independence as they get older. So it's, as they say, putting your love for your children above your dislike. Well, it's finding the benefits, isn't it, of, of what, what's going to come out of this relationship with this other person who I'm not there with. Even though you might feel cranky about the circumstances under which you broke up, you might be able to find a silver lining in the cloud um, and, and you're not doing it um, 
without, well, how, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you're not doing it. You're not faking it. You're actually, there, there actually might be some really great benefit. Disingenuous is the word I'm looking for. You're not being disingenuous by saying that. You just say you're recognising that children do better when they have a good relationship with both parents. I think it's a, yeah, they do. There's no doubt about it. That's all the research. I think it's a, so hard. I've seen it. You've seen it in your work, and I saw it as my previous work as a lawyer and you are now as a mediator. For some people, they actually can't even say hello civilly. And even that as a first challenge for some people, it's sure. that hard. Uh, you know, I, I, hear, I, I hear it. I, 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 and I, I, but then again, the question is, what's in my child's best interest, not mine? Sometimes we do all sorts of sacrificial things for our children. We stay up late when they're sick and, you know, we go and we interrupt their own sleep because they're not well, that kind of thing. So I'm saying we do things that we don't feel like doing. So why wouldn't it matter that we do it in that con- other context as well? So I think it is stealing yourself sometimes. And, and you're right, st- civility is a small price to pay for giving, uh, helping kids to kind of be able to have a relationship with both of you. Because there is, I remember Laurie Craig in the family court used to say to me, they're half of you and half of you. <sighs> You'll get there, ask parents to come in. This child is half of you and half of you. And I thought that was not bad, actually. It, it's, it's great. It is. No, it's, it's great. Um, but it's it comes back to your other book. To be able to do that, you have to pause long enough to not react emotionally and think of your children. And for some people in that heightened emotion, when emotions are raw, it's very difficult. It's very difficult for people. It, all, it also can be, this is the judgmental older man talking here, is very self-indulgent. I think, I've seen people, I think to myself, you could do this, but you're choosing not to. Oh, so, oh, that sounds a bit. Oh, that sounds a bit. Tough. Oh, it is. It is. I'm, I am. I'm I know. I know. I know. It's right. That's what all the paper says. But when someone's done the dirty on you, or yeah. or you feel is not, you know, acting appropriately in their parenting, it, it's hard to um, smile and say hello. Uh, yeah, no, I get that. Uh, all I'm saying is that there's a there's a point. Um, at which you can let your emotions rule the roost. And some people do it because it's a habit more than anything else. They they do it out of habit, not because it's in their child's best interest. So if you've got two competing principles, why am I going to do something that's in my child's best interest? But I've got this terrible habit of letting, um, saying what's on my mind, basically what my my feelings are telling me then I think that emotional reasoning, if you like, gets in the road. And I think there is a point at which you can either change the habit or you can, for the children's sake, which is not being disingenuous to yourself, but it's really saying, actually, I need to make a decision here that I'm going to be reasonably civil to this person who I don't like. I think I suggested to someone once, look, I know it's really hard, but in the beginning, just pretend you're in a movie with your favourite movie actor and just smile and say hello. Mm. 
It's a it's a little step to a, a longer a longer journey. But but that reminds me too when you talked before about um, that it was self indulgent to let your emotions sort of take over in that situation. I cannot let you go. It can be. It can be. It can be. I'm not saying it a bit, sorry, I'm so sorry. No, you didn't say always, but it can be sometimes. I'm sorry. But 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 that relates to something that's really important that um, I've got a few more questions, but I want to talk about your metaphor as a teenager, as a boat, because those emotions of the parent relate to that metaphor, I think. Would you mind talking a bit about your metaphor? Uh, well, um, I think that the analogy is that Boats have onboard systems, which is their ability to kind of regulate themselves. So they have a steering wheel. Um, they have a, um, so you can tell I'm not very much a boat person. They have a helm. They have a rudder. They have an engine on board that makes the boat go. But then they've got offboard systems like radar, the lighthouse, um, the weather report, you know, which helps them to kind of work out what they're going to do and not do. So to some extent, children are a bit like that. They are governed by onboard systems, which is their ability to exert some self-control, and off-board systems, which is mum and dad's capacity to help them to um, manage their frustrations or manage their behaviour. Um, you know, two-year-olds, two-year-olds are pretty violent. You know, statistically speaking, two-year-olds are the most violent human beings on earth. They hit, they bite. They punch, they scream, correct? But oh, what yeah, happens is what happens, what happens over a period of time is they become less violent. Because why? Because their brain grows and their ability to work out things improves over time. But also their mum and dad from off board say, you can't hit your mate. You've got to use your words. You've got to speak to me about how frustrated you are, but you're not allowed to go and whack him with a, you know, a, a plastic bat. Um, so, so parents describe, if you like, the habits of appropriate behaviour to their children. Um, I think for, for teenagers too, you know, it's, and particularly ones who, whose parents are separating, there's a sense in which we need to be able to, on the one hand, listen to what it's like for them, but also be able to still have the tough conversation that we need to have with them. Because um, part of us might feel a bit guilty about having to put this child through this difficult time, which is fair enough. But but also the teenager has some ability to exert some self-control. We should be improving. So it's definitely better than two. That's definitely better than 10. And by the time they're 14, 15, I think a reasonable expectation is that you're not going to um, behave appallingly. Um, parents need to have that reasonable expectation so they can hold their child to account sometimes. But I, I, I do get it. I think that there's this anomaly where it's my fault to some extent that this has occurred or I'm part of what happened and I don't want to put them through any more misery. And so sometimes parents are not, if you like, strict enough or uh, firm enough with their teenagers when they need to be. But if, if the, if the um, external influences of the boat um, would be the emotions of the parents so if you're theoretically blowing a gale <laughs> on your child <laughs> you're definitely yeah. you're not going to help them well um, let's go back I mean 
it, there's another there's another guy Siegel that I like. Siegel says that when children are really little, like four, um, that parents are the relationship that actually help that child's nervous system to be calm or to be nervous. You know, so in child protection terms, we worry a great deal about parents who are hitting their children, screaming at their kids, little kids, because what we know is that that frustration release, if you like, um, affects children's nervous system. It makes them nervous. Um, but the other thing is that if we're screaming and yelling at teenagers all the time, it's going to, one, wreck the relationship, and, two, it's unlikely to resolve the problem at hand. So, again, going back to the analogy that you've got the fully adult psychological mind, I should be able to bring a certain level of forbearance for you being a bit snide, rude or awful <laughs> in this conversation and letting that go through to the keeper, but at the same time dealing with the issue at hand. And I think that's what parents can get better at if they use a script, for example. If you go into the conversation thinking to yourself, they can get cranky and awful and upset to a certain extent, but I'm not going to. I'm going to go into this conversation with a particular attitude to try and resolve this problem that we're having. And similarly, as a parent to the other parent, you could probably let some goals go through to the keeper. Indeed. I mean, again, it, it, it's, it's this, it is the thing, though, isn't it, Liz, that the littlest thing gets built into a, a mountain, you know, a molehill into a mountain. And I think uh, sometimes when people bring things up, I'm thinking you're getting upset because of that. And, like, I might think that I'm the counsellor in the court and I'm thinking, wow, that's not, I, I don't think that's a very big deal. But I can hear it's a big deal for you. So the question is, we've got to get things in proportion. And that's what Peck, the psychiatrist I spoke about before, was saying, says. He says that it's really important to, to work out what's the little stuff. Don't sweat the small stuff, as you said before. But what also is the, what's the bigger stuff and what should I get in, be getting upset about there's so many things I want to ask you about, but I'm only going to ask you three more because um, um, I think um, there's so much to absorb already. But just generally, in terms of just signs that a teenager is being impacted by the separation, how would you say you would notice the signs that are different from a normal, well, I shouldn't say normal, but a sort of um, maybe grumpy teenager, a teenager who's um, a bit moody, um, maybe a bit tense. Are you able to distinguish that or do you just leave that for professionals? Well, no, I think psychologically you can, you can tell when somebody's going downhill. When I, uh, and I think the question is how do you resolve this, that this might be a normal part of being a teenager? Uh, the moodiness, the kind of mood, the, um, the the grumpiness, all that, the normal part of teenagers versus the pathological part. I think there's a tendency to to over-diagnose things as being pathological and they're just a normal part of life. So they're going to go through a grief as well, but that doesn't mean they're clinically depressed. It just means they're going to be, they're sad um, for a period of time you know, and, and that they're likely to have some good days and bad, bad days, so to speak. I think the, so the tendency to over-pathologise, I think, is 
is not good. I mean, labels are good for money and support. I remember a psychiatrist supervisor of mine said way back that it's important to kind of um, remember that the reason we're giving this child a diagnosis is so that he can get the appropriate medicine and, and or the appropriate support um, in terms of, you know, money for a teacher's aid or something like that. Yeah, I think it's. I think what we've got to do is is be good listeners, of course, without being uh, solving the problem. There are three things that parents tend to do if they when 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 they're when they're not good listeners, and so they tend to give advice, solve the problem, or shut it down. In other words, their teenager comes to them for the first time, maybe, and saying, "I'm really sad about what happened to our family," and instead of listening um sometimes parents i think find it hard to to not jump to a solution quickly or to, to give advice or platitudes you know we'll get over this it'll be fine um that kind of thing so i think i certainly think listening is going to um, help them at least feel heard in the back of your book i keep on mentioning it but it's like my new bible michael <laughs> <laughs> and I, I bought I bought a few copies to share uh-huh. um, with friends. Um, but in the back of the book, you've got some resources, and a couple are also on my list. You've got um, Headspace as a, yep. a source that people can go to. Um, mm-hmm. That's a great organization. They're doing great work. If, if do you think that's an option? I'm just if people want to explore more, do they just go to their GP or they what what would what 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 do you think if they think it's a bit more than usual? Uh, well, a bit more than usual, just to go back to what your original question was, is don't want to go to school anymore, down more than up in their mood, um, in, don't, are not eating properly or eating way too much. Um, so those kind of things, not sleeping properly, all of those are indicators, I suppose, of somebody not functioning. But it's usually multifactorial. It's not just one thing. It might be, you know, a number of things that, that have changed. Um and by all means, you know, if people are not going to school and not functioning properly at school, that's an occupational thing, uh, then I think you can get help from people. Like Headspace is everywhere in Australia, everywhere. So that's a great organisation. They have, you know, multi-faceted team of doctors, psychologists, social workers, you know, youth workers. So they, they play a really important role in the lives of young people from about 12 up, I think. Yeah, and I mean, there's the there's also Parent Line and and Kids Helpline. But um, I did go to a conference um, where Headspace were speaking not long ago, and it was just so Im- impressive. Well, I think I think you have probably given. I've got these last two questions. I I, I think I probably already have your best best pieces of advice. Was there one final piece of advice you'd want to add? Recommend to parents of teenagers who are in the process of separating. Yeah, well, I've been thinking about it this because as you wrote it, I, I was thinking probably good, if you can, to not hold a grudge or, a, or, or keep a chip on your shoulder long term. It's easy, isn't it, when somebody does us a wrong to kind of be resentful that I, uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm, I don't know, but I think holding a grudge or a chip on your shoulder for too long stops you from being your best. Huh. So so eventually move on, is, I suppose, is what I would say. 
get to a point where you say, I've, I've let that go now. Well, I mean, you've seen it literally thousands of times probably, so it's <laughs> it's good advice. It's good advice. Now, Michael, my final question. I think I mentioned yeah. you, my love of music. So ah. for me and I think for countless others, listening to music is a pleasure, a solace, a teacher, and it's and it's inexpensive. <laughs> so it doesn't ilk, it doesn't have to be a song relating to separation, but it, and anything that you would like to recommend to me personally. Uh, you know, I, I really like Tim McGraw's song that is called Humble and Kind. Oh, Tim McGraw. Yes. That's a bit of country, isn't it? Is it it's Tim country. McGraw a bit of country? Oh, and, and his wife. I hope I hope they're still married, Michael. Are they still married? Don't break my I heart. Don't I, think, oh, I don't know. I don't know. But that's a really terrific song on YouTube. So Humble and Kind, if you haven't seen it, is my one of my favourite new songs. Well, I think that fits nicely with Don't Hold the Grudge. I think it does. I think it does. Michael, thank you so much. I am so grateful that you could talk to me today. It has been so informative and it has a real joy. And, Michael, um, I was thinking that I could sign off with a typical Byron Bay goodbye. Are you ready? Are you ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are we meant to have a virtual hug? No, I was going to say namaste, Michael. Ah, namaste. <laughs> namaste. Thanks for having me. Michael, thanks so much. I'll see you soon. Okay. Right bye. Bye-bye. I really hope you enjoyed the podcast. And if something in the episode has motivated you, I recommend that before you take any action, you get professional advice because the conversations are general in nature and not based on your particular situation. Please reach out to me if you have any questions or if there's another topic you'd like explored. And if you know someone who might benefit from the show, remember to tell them about it or suggest my Instagram or website, www.theseparationfix.com. Good luck being your best self today. Just know I'm out there too, trying as well. Bye.